Would you give your mum, dad, aunt or that uncle who hugs your partner a little too long free access to your phone? Oh no! Oh my god, it's, it's a really long video! Ew! In Dave's brand new YouTube original, Get Off My Phone, we've got six comedians to give their phones over to a relative with total freedom to read messages, DMs, photos and browser history. What's your social history? Sorry? What to do? Tips for relief. The rules are simple. Their relative can read anything they want and even make calls from the comedian's phone. What is this? What is I know what this one is. That, that looks really okay. bad. Starring Tanya Moore, Anya Magliano, Finlay Christie, Travis J with his mum Angie Lamar, Hayley Morris, Grace Campbell and dad Alistair Campbell. Slightly sexually compromising <laughs> Divulging their deepest digital secrets. <laughs> what the hell is happening? Get off my phone. A Dave YouTube original. Available now on Dave's YouTube channel. This is a Dave original podcast. There may be some bad language in this podcast. And by that I mean swear words, not poor grammar or whatever. Jordan Brooks. Look at what you've done. I'm Jordan Brooks, a comedian. I once did a show that involved me trying to suck myself off. And after repeatedly doing that over the course of a year, I gave myself what the doctors have called irreversible sciatica. This week, it's Rachel Paris. You may know her from her hugely popular segments on The Mash Report. She's also been on shows like Guessable, Live at the Apollo and Question Team. We talked about her early love for performance. I was very lucky. My primary school did, like, Christmas plays every single year. Her forever unreleased classical music album. It's nice to have myself. And her son's literally violent refusal to follow in her footsteps. Rachel. <laughs> Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> bit, bit sensual. <laughs> You know when you know when you haven't sort of spoken to a lot of people all day, and yeah. then you speak, and the tone of what you say is just so wildly off. Yeah, that's what happened it, there. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I went in. I went in at way too central an angle. It was. It was. So let me try that again. Yeah, Rachel. Better. It's a, bit, a bit more insistent, though. It feels like <laughs> I'm about to raise a pressing concern with you. Yeah, Rachel Paris. Hello. Hello. Is that how you say your surname? Because there's an extra R in it, and I always read it as Paris. You do say it Paris, but I would accept a pronunciation with a rolled R. See, I can't do a rolled R, but I'll... Neither I'll can I, a, actually. Do you know what? I'll give it a go now. Thanks. Why not? You know, sometimes I'll, um, I think, because I've never really sung out loud. Right. And sometimes I think I'd rather not, because I'd like to retain the mystery <laughs> that one, that I might be able to do it. And Did I think the same. You've never sung out loud. I've sort of sung into my own face. Wow. In a sort of very, in that way where like, because I I still, even though you know I cover up my webcam mic when I'm not using it, I do all I take all the yeah. precautions. I still think there's cameras everywhere, even in like my bedside lamp. So I still have that self consciousness the whole yes. time, like I'm being watched. Yeah, and there probably are in your appliances. To be fair, <laughs> what if you? What if you? It turns out an incredible singer. And you never knew. Maybe on my deathbed, I'll give it one one blast, yeah. and people will be like, "Go on then," and they drag my <laughs> deathbed into a sound studio. <laughs> but imagine the sad disappointment if I don't do it, and then the last thing I think before I die is, "Oh yeah, no, I'm not a good singer. I'm not good at anything." Yeah, that would be sad. No, you're right. <laughs> you're so it's right. Best not to know. To not to not try. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I haven't rolled my. I've never tried to roll my R's before. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. But I will try it now. Okay, so it's Rachel Paris. See. <laughs> 
Nailed it. Maybe I can sing after all. Yeah, it's really nice. So tell me how you came to be in this world. Uh, I was born unto my mum mm-hmm. at home in their house. In the house? Yeah, in the house. In the house that they still live in, in Leicester. Wow. Do you know exactly what part of the house you were born? Is oh, there yeah. is there like a patch yeah, in, on the ground where you... In their bedroom. They, ...your parents point to and go, you flop out there? <laughs> they do, yeah. Absolutely grown up with the story of it, of like, I was born in, in their bedroom and my dad caught me and there was a midwife, but she hardly had anything to do. She just sat in the corner knitting. <laughs> and where do we go from there? Well, where does one go from from birth do you remember like your first memory or thought because there's that period isn't there where the baby can't separate itself from the mother and believes it is the mother like it it doesn't recognize itself as as a separate person so at what point did you go i'm rachel paris (laughs) thanks for continuing with that um (laughs) a really early memory i have is what i must have been at creche or play school or something And I'd climbed up the sort of massive sand pit that I think was an actual pit. There was a big, like, bank of ground. And I grabbed onto some of that very strong grass. And then I'd lost my footing and I was hanging off the strong grass. And in my head, in that memory, it was a real, like, I'm going to die if the Mm. grass breaks moment. But with hindsight... How old were you when, when this happened? Two or three, I think. Oh, my God. But I think, actually, probably I was only, like, one foot off the ground. But in my head... It was this like was it. scary. What is the concept of death to a two-year-old child? I didn't know if I thought I'd die, but I thought I don't know if I knew what death was then. But I did think I was very scared that I would get very hurt if I fell. Yeah, yeah. And then I think, as I remember, I think someone came and got me. Someone just went, just kind of picked me up and went plop on the ground. Yeah, it's like um, you know something is wrong, but you're not sure what, and your child's brain is like, uh, bad, bad, thing bad, thingy, thingy, bad, bad. Yeah, absolutely. So you grew up in Leicester? Yes. Went to school in Barkby, which is the local little uh, primary school, which was very, very nice. What were you like as a, as a child? Were you quite quiet? Were you quite spirited? What was Yeah, what was I, was qu- I was quiet, but I didn't realise I was quiet until towards the end of secondary school. Like, basically, I feel like all my schooling was teachers telling my parents that I was quiet, whilst Mm. I thought I was a very lively, up-for-it kind of happy person. Yeah. Oh, that's awful, Every school report would be like, she's really quiet. (laughs) (laughs) All through, all through school. But I was, I really enjoyed school, both primary school and secondary school. So what were you doing that you thought made you loud that the teachers weren't picking up on was it just like a lot of scream like a lot of noise in your head and you thought god i'm a loud person but actually you just sat quietly <laughs> i don't in the think i was loud i just thought i was normal yeah and i feel like they were telling my parents that i wasn't normal that i was quieter than normal there's a term for that now these days it's gaslighting isn't it is it gaslighting, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. gaslighting. So teachers were just gaslighting my parents <laughs> i do remember thinking like i think a lot of the fun that i had was not i wasn't someone to like hold court in a classroom or even on the playground, I had like close friends and in a group or a pair of close friends, we would have so much fun, Mm. loads of like long running jokes um, and like private jokes and just, we would just laugh and laugh. And I enjoyed the lessons, but I didn't always feel the need to like talk a lot in the lessons because you're not Mm. meant to, Jordan. You're not meant to talk a lot in the lessons. I didn't, I thought that was the whole point. 
Yeah, um, Rachel is so... not disruptive enough. I'm having to do a better job as a teacher. It's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating. She keeps listening to what I'm saying, and that scares me. I do remember at secondary school, there was like this point in the third year where I did a school play for like the first time, and it was really fun, and I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And at parents' evening, they said to my parents, oh, she's completely come out of her shell. She's been so quiet. And even my parents, they know me, and they were like, no, she hasn't. She was born out of her shell. She wasn't in a shell. <laughs> yeah, there are still bits of it. shell on our bedroom just... floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the first public performance that you did. I was very lucky. My primary school did like Christmas plays every single year and everyone mm. had a part, which I think is an absolutely brilliant thing for a school to do. It's, it's always funny in school plays when they, they have to ensure that everyone has a role. So they have to make up new characters like, oh, here comes Peter Pan's twin brother, Jeremy Pan, ready to fight a gaggle of Captain Hooks. <laughs> you were sort of forced to do a bit of performing, but it was the first sort of big lots of people came to see it play that I did when I was, I don't know, 13 or something. Mm. What was it? Oh, it was A Midsummer Night's Dream. Who did you play in Midsummer Night's Dream? Hermia. But it was really fun and I had a massive crush on the guy who was opposite me. Ah, okay, here we go. Who was, what was his (laughs) name? What was his full name, please? (laughs) (laughs) His full name was... He's a doctor now. Was this your first crush yeah. then? Before that, you hadn't sort of felt drawn to anyone? Not really, no. It was the first one that I was like... I mean, I do think when you're like in a play or some kind of big project like that with someone, you know, you're spending quite an intense time together. And I do think it's quite common to have a bit of a crush on someone you're in a play with, to be honest. Particularly as a um, child, like, because you are sort of looking for scripts in a psychological way to play out, yeah. you know, to sort of impose a sense of how you desire and what you desire. And so I think that's why a lot of actors often fall in love because it's within a framework that kind of... Yeah, I think so too. ...gives them a sense of something that's real. And especially at that age, as you say, because at 14, I mean, like I think quite a lot of 14-year-olds, I was not sort of in (laughs) physical contact with many (laughs) boys. And as a sort of quite naive little white straight girl... We didn't even kiss in the play, but it was like bodily contact. Were you supposed to kiss in the play? No. If I recall, the original Shakespeare text had uh, (laughs) had a lot of (laughs) a lot of obscene shit in (laughs) there. I'm sure they cleaned it up for the 14 year olds, but but it did require sort of like a lot of sort of hugging and embracing and picking me up and stuff like that. So that is plenty. Also, to be fair, he was fit. He was fit. Say it. You know, he was fit. He was he was fit then. He's fit now. Let's say it, Jordan. <laughs> he was fit. Let's say it. I miss him. Let's say it. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> but you were always focused on being a performer, right? Yeah, pretty much. Like I didn't know if it would work, but it did in the end. So, like, I did music at uni as the subject, mm. but I also did like plays and jazz and all sorts uh, on the side. And then when I finished uni, I never moved back home. I stayed in Oxford, where I'd been studying and got a job, or three. Um, So I was a cocktail waitress, I worked in a bookshop, and I did tutoring in music and drama. And did that for like three years and saved up a bit. And then I went and did a year MA in drama in London, Mm -hmm. whilst working as an administrator in an opera company, and at the Barbican, and at the Royal Opera House. And then I got a job as a choir leader and piano player in a primary school. Oh, that's fun. Uh, and I was a freelance 
Perry piano teacher and singing teacher all over London as well. Wow. So I was doing all those jobs until three years ago. Oh, no, I forgot that all of COVID happened. So it was probably five years ago now. Yeah. I still think that would that would come as a surprise to people because presumably you were on TV and you were doing radio stuff. And then you also had other jobs you had to get up and do, right? I did. And I missed them. I missed them, to be honest. Did it feel like you were living a bit of a double life? Yeah, it did. It was quite weird, especially the primary school stuff, which I was, you know, on stage and even on TV occasionally by that point doing very much adult, sweary, political sometimes stuff. And then going and (laughs) like doing lovely little primary school arrangements for seven-year-olds, you know, and teaching them, teaching five-year-olds how to play the piano. And I was sort of very aware that there would come a point where these two things would not mix well. And I think mm. I left just at the point where I, I was getting known enough that it was awkward and parents would start to say, um, is that, <laughs> <laughs> is that you? Sorry to (laughs) show you clips of yourself on their phone. Yeah. I mean, there's literally a video I made for the BBC while I was working in that school, a sort of like character, I suppose, but a character of me, like being very angry at teaching the piano Mm -hmm. to little children. (laughs) So I think when we made that, it was like, yeah, probably ought to wind it down now, really. You're a musician as well. How many instruments can you play? Um, Three, I suppose. Uh, piano, clarinet, saxophone. Oh, the big three. Well, the big one plus two stupid ones. And I sing, obviously. Um, so that's a fourth. So you have sung out loud. I have, you yeah. You do know, you I, can say. I'm not going to lie. I feel like I'm more in the majority <laughs> <laughs> than you are with that. When did you first sing out loud? They had a little choir at primary school that I sang with. So I first sang there and really mm. enjoyed it. Could you hear your own voice and you were like, hang on a minute. Hang no, on a but minute. I, I tell you, all it was was that lots of the other kids hated it and I loved it. So it wasn't that I thought I was good at it, but I was aware that I enjoyed it and I assumed everyone else did and then found out they didn't. And I was like, all right, weird. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I started playing the piano. Um, We had like an old piano in our house that Mm. was one of those like it was so it was really nice old like it would look lovely in a photo shoot. It wasn't like a great instrument, but it was there. And that, I think that's really one of the best things ever to have a piano there, whatever it's like in the house. And I used to reach up and sort of have a go pressing the keys when I was tiny. So when I got to six, um, my mum said, do you want to have piano lessons? And I was like, yeah. Uh, and I started and yeah, it was, you know, my parents aren't musical at all. Um, no. So it was not really something that was like a normal thing to do in the family or anything. So what was the piano there for? Was it sort of like they wanted to encourage you, but they didn't want to force you because obviously, yeah. you know, actively you you could potentially rebel against what they wanted to do. So they just sort of <laughs> yeah, that's true. tucked a piano in the corner and went, look, if it happens, it happens. <laughs> they weren't bothered. I, I think they didn't think of piano lessons as playing the piano as like a thing that it would be good for children to do or anything. It was there because my granddad used to play by ear, like old show tunes and things, and he used to live there. And my big, big brother um, used to play as well. Um, He's like quite a lot older than me. Um, So there was like a reason for it to be there. But then a lot of time had passed since it had really properly been played. So Mm -hmm. I'm really glad it was still there. Otherwise, I don't think I'd have ever played but I really enjoyed it straight away so I just 
I just sort of um, soldiered on with it, really. Like I got, they just got me a local piano teacher. And I will say there was a point where I was really good. Like I just sort of carried on <laughs> in a normal it. way. But I'm, I feel comfortable in saying that because it went off. Um, it went off again. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to post about your achievements as long as the achievement is I look back and I'm like, fuck, I was good. Like, I have, <laughs> thank God I made a CD. I made a CD at the time when I was the best I'll ever be at the piano. No which way. If you still got it. I was, I was like it? 17, I think. Yeah, I've got it. Oh, wow. um, and I started doing like, you know, proper classical, like post, post grade eight, I started like doing proper classical stuff at like 16. Mm-hmm. And then I got like a, concert pianist teacher um and entering like piano competitions and stuff um so yeah I made a cd I was playing like a bit of Debussy and Brahms and Mozart and um I was really would you ever would you ever put it online would you ever release it for the for the the Paris heads no because even like it was very good but it wasn't as good as someone who has continued to get good in that like it wasn't as good as Debussy himself so you know it's nice to have myself to be like wow mm. and it's nice to have it to to break my mum's heart who will I think never get over me not being a classical pianist for mm-hmm. a career um so yeah I was that's where I went like to study music at Oxford is because I was I was very much like a classical musician at, at that mm. point like in my teens um doing like classical singing and all that kind of thing interesting but then I didn't have the I just think to go into that world you have to want to devote hours and hours and hours of your day Mm. to practicing the same pieces until they're perfect and did you did you not want to do it I didn't want to I've seen whiplash yeah I've seen that I know how hard people have to be uh sort of run run through the ringer is that the right phrase yeah yeah do you believe in that do you believe in this kind of like no pain no gain you've got to you've got to Um, sacrifice all in order to be good at something I don't think you need to be physically abused a la whiplash um (laughs) in order to be good but I do think that that level of in order to be like absolutely amazing those things that are like real precision careers like, mm-hmm. I think that what I do is not a precision career. You know, I write a comedy song. It can be rough around the edges and still make people laugh. And in improv, it can be rough around the edges. And that's what makes people laugh. If it wasn't, it would be weird. It'd be mad if you were, like, typing a comedy song so furiously and, and determinedly <laughs> that your fingers were bleeding. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> now, Rachel, you, you had a baby in That's 2021, right. is that correct? Correct, yes. Now... When it, um, when it, when it, yeah, you can tell I'm a father. Um, when it grew up, um, yeah. you you started laying instruments around the house in the That's hope right. that it would pick it up and start learning to play. 
But from what I gather, it actually went the opposite way and started actively smashing these instruments up. What what happened? Why? Yeah. Wh- 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 where do you think you went wrong as a mother? Yeah, thank you for that question. I would say that even when Billy was small... Interestingly, his name's Billy Floyd. Uh, and we always mm-hmm. used to joke when he was little, we'd joke that like, he sounds like a boxer. <laughs> um, and actually... Even when he was little, we were like, oh, you know, he sort of like looks like he might be a bit of a, a bit of a brawler, you know, a bit mm. of a lad. And then he did sort of grow up to be sort of like quite physically huge and strong. I mean, we're we talking abnormally wide. Yes. Like I a would three say foot that, wide yeah. child. Yeah. As wide as he was tall for a lot of his childhood. That's an alarming set of measurements. Well, he grew out of that, but that was a, that was a phase. But that was. So he, but, but he grew widthways. Well, no, he grew, he grew taller. Yeah. And then it became more sort of closer to a more normal shape. But yeah. now like he's he's a big guy. And anyway, I was leaving, you know, sort of, yeah, as you say, like a violin, um, a xylophone, mm. uh, a flute, these kinds of things around. And there's a piano there, of course, around the house, anything that we mm-hmm. can find. Just because I think it's really good for children to be able to feel they can have a go at anything musical and see what instrument suits them. Mm. But none of them suited him musically. And I felt like maybe I was putting too much pressure on by leaving them around and he showed me that I was putting too much pressure on by, um, yeah, bending them. Quite aggressively, I'd imagine, because these instruments, they weren't just like Toys R Us instruments. They were were heavy duty. Yeah, it was like Stradivarius. Yeah, Mm. um, they they were expensive instruments. I mean... It was costing you a fortune, surely. Yeah, yeah, it it was expensive. Was it worth it? you know, to take the risk of, you know, if he was a born musician. Um, no, probably not. No, I, I'd, I'd say concretely no. No, it, it wasn't like worth it, no. no. Um, you, you, you had a lot, of, a lot of pianos. I mean, you had, at one point, didn't I think I heard you had, you had four pianos line, lining one wall in the living room. <laughs> yeah. In the hope that if they walked past the first one thinking, <laughs> nah, maybe the second one would, would grab his attention. But that wasn't, that wasn't just for him like that was for me as well yeah. um because i did i reached a point really in my mid 30s where i just didn't feel comfortable in a room without the without right one. kind of piano in it you know especially so, if you want your, you want to feel comfortable in your home yeah of course you want to feel and that's and different that's for really, everyone it's different for we everyone. All, we it means different thing things. That we need. Some people need a plant yeah. in the corner you needed uh several you know. pianos. <laughs> so yeah, i would uh, i was lucky, you know, i was lucky because at at that point nearing 40 I was sort of earning enough to be able to to buy pianos at that rate Mm. I didn't have an absurd number I just had like you know six Mm -hmm. um so yeah I suppose they you could say they were lined up but yeah we had all the pianos in in one room but they all had a slightly different um you know timbre if you like so what did Billy end up doing then if not if not instruments i mean were you laying other things around the house in the hope that he would he, he would yeah, pick them up like like sort of like an easel yeah you know um paints um yeah. even board games i thought maybe Just maybe you'll get into yeah. board games you know be a Just bit like of a, a glass a of water yeah hydrate yeah you know if you're into it and then actually he he did get into boxing mm. which I, as i say we sort of foreshadowed yeah, uh, we we sort of would joke about it when he was little, and then, you know, he became a prize boxer. Um, Do you think he heard which you? Then? Was good for Do him. you think those jokes kind of got somewhere in his in his brain, lodged in his brain, and you know, he tried to turn the joke into a reality? Maybe, maybe it's something we put into his subconscious. But also, you know, his physique meant that 
doing something um, physically intimidating really suited him. Yeah, sit him down to the ground. Yeah. Uh, if anything, it was it was it was it was the only thing he could do with that physique. Well, I feel like if it wasn't boxing, it would have been just lifting people off the ground. Yeah, yeah, or, or, or turning up to concerts and smashing up the orchestra. Yeah, and I'm glad it wasn't that. So. Hmm. How how was his boxing career? How did it uh, how did it play out? Did you did you go and watch him regularly? Yeah, of course. Like you know, we, we supported parents, and uh, you know, so Billy Floyd, um, you know, everyone now has heard of the name. Obviously, mm. it's become like a household name. Um, it turns out it wasn't the right thing for him actually, mm-hmm. because he had a successful career for a while, but then since. Uh, he battled with, um, I'm going to say, Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, yeah, you could yeah. say that. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad you did, because that is a real man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know, yeah. yeah. But by that age, uh, he was, I mean, Floyd Mayweather was about 76. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was, an, so it was just essentially beating an old man for money. That's where the career ended, yeah, for Billy. <laughs> it, was um, a, it was a career ender for both of them. Yeah, for both of them, Um it was problematic, is what people called it. Mm. Uh, it shouldn't have been allowed to happen, you know. No, but why, you know why, what Floyd's why like. You, why, so why there was Billy Floyd it? and Floyd Mayweather, <laughs> <laughs> Battle of the Floyds. Floyd, Battle of the Floyds, Floyd on Floyd, <laughs> as it um, was, as it was marketed. <laughs> it was marketed on Sky Sports, and it was a bad fight. Of course, it was a bad fight because well, it was know, one punch, this... and Floyd Mayweather was was incapacitated for life. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. And really, people should have been able to predict that. Really, but but no, strangely, no one did. Yeah, I mean, you live and learn, but you don't live if you're Floyd Mayweather. (laughs) And what did what did Billy learn from it? Not to fight old men. (laughs) And he retired from boxing. He was just he was heartbroken, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was heartbroken and embarrassed. You also, and this is and this is really interesting to me, is you you actually ended up releasing this CD that you'd done of classical music when you were when you were about seventeen. Yeah. Um, what was the what was the thinking behind that? Because you obviously we, you know we talked about it in your, uh, earlier on in your life you'd, you'd resolved never to do that, but then you but then you did. What it was uh, was that I I felt like I was ready, sort of in my mid forties to branch out basically into new arenas and they asked me to do some presenting for the proms which I had done a little bit actually in my Mm. 30s and I was very into that idea because you know I'm a fan of classical music. Of course Billy wasn't invited in fact in fact Billy was was actively asked not to attend. Yeah I I used yeah absolutely absolutely on a ban which was fine with me because it would have been distracting. Mm. Um, So what I put to them was I could present the proms or could I perform at the proms and they were resistant to that mm-hmm. um, and said, you know, we really tend to get experienced classical performers who are career musicians. And I was uh, like, ah, that. but yeah. have you heard my CD? Uh, and they said no. And that's what drove me to think, you know, there's a whole, there's a generation, two generations of people out there who don't know that I once could play Brahms. <laughs> and isn't that sad? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a shame? So I thought it's time to correct that. So yeah, I, I put it out. I put out two CDs at the same time. I put out the original CD of me playing that classical piano and uh, a CD of duets with uh, Alfie Bow. 
And Michael who, Ball wasn't happy. And of course, you hadn't met Alfie. I mean, it was it was all done no. exclusively over the phone. Yeah, no need, no need to no meet need him. for it, no need that's, for it. Yeah, that's what he said when we asked him. He said, "No, no don't feel the need to meet her." Um, yeah. We Which is a great remotely, title for the album so. as well. There's no need for this. No need for this. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So what? Um, well, it did very well. It did very well. Well, this know. is this is what I want. I can to talk hear you about. mocking it, but I am. You know, it got it. To, it got to it got to number six in the classic FM charts. So hmm. that's big. That's you know. that's big. You know, Margarita yeah. Taylor played it a lot. Yes, yeah, she, she did. Alexander <laughs> she Armstrong loved it. Yeah. Uh, gave us a quote. For the cover, so <laughs> jokes on you. I want to ask you about this because this is what interests me about the the other album you released, the classical music. Now you knew it wasn't up to scratch. You knew it wasn't as good as the as the greats. It wasn't as good as the professionals. However, it was huge. It was a bestseller. Um, it did better than than the other album to the point where you were doing full blown concerts in the Royal Albert Hall, performing borderline inadequately this classical music, and people were going wild for it. Now, that that must be almost kind of similar to the way your teachers treated you, where it's sort of like gaslighting, where everyone's saying, this is amazing, this is the best thing you've ever heard, and you're playing it thinking, no, it's not, it's not It's not very good at all. Yeah. That must be really confusing, to be, to be popular for something that you know isn't great. You've summed that up really well, actually. I did... I did feel that, like, I wasn't performing these pieces as well as any other professional classical pianist. Mm. And yet there were just thousands of people coming to the concerts. And wild, and for, it. wild for it. They, I mean, it was a weird type of audience because normally at classical concerts, people are sort of like quite quiet and reverent and then they clap at the end. But I would say they, they approach my concerts in a different way and they would sort of heckle, mm. you know, and sort of like, shout out and get up on stage and think they could mm-hmm. join in and stuff like that. I think I think the audiences were like bad audiences. Yeah. But nonetheless they, you know, they you you know, they bought tickets. So yeah, it was a strange period, but I didn't feel like it was my job to say you're wrong to enjoy this yeah. if they were enjoying it. But they were wrong. Factually it was it was not good music. It wasn't good um, music. Well, it also, wasn't what the composers intended, let's say. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very that's a very polite way of putting it. Yeah. Um and it's also there's such premeditation involved in bringing a cello to a concert you're about to watch with the intention yeah. of getting on and joining in. Yeah, I've I found that amazing. <laughs> People like a cello is one thing, a harp is another. Yeah. Like <laughs> The level of like commitment you have to have and self belief to think that that's going to, to be take allowed that on the tube to bring that on, yeah. the, on the tube with you. When that happened, it was like, what? What are you playing at? But kind of yeah, good yeah. on you for trying. Well, exactly, and I think this 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 speaks to your very kind nature that you never once asked anyone to get off the stage. You you let it. You sort of rolled with it. Just let it play out. Um, just let it play out. Is it? You know. Yeah. Um, so you hit the peak. Uh, of your of your career, you were you were playing classical music, you were performing uh, regularly, you were acting. It felt like nothing could go wrong, and nothing did go wrong. In fact, it was all wonderful. But then, for some reason, I'd, I'd love to know why you you stopped actually doing that. You sort of didn't throw it all away, but you threw like half of it away and went back to doing part-time jobs as a cocktail waitress. What what was the thinking behind that? Right. Well, I think you know how I said like the audiences who came to see me playing piano badly mm. uh were wrong. I think I got just very 
disillusioned with the whole idea of the audiences who were coming to see me and I felt like I couldn't trust them and that I needed to sort of I'd got so swept up in the idea of the, you know the music thing and going back and all that kind of thing I was like, I just needed a clean slate is what mm. I felt and I also really started to feel that I'd missed in all those years I'd missed my true calling which was admin mm-hmm. yeah and I was just always so so good at admin actually and I didn't I don't think I'd really given myself the time to blossom mm. um in that arena in my early 20s when I was doing it so um I thought fuck it you know things were going well and I had the money to take that risk as well um to to pay for Microsoft to take that Excel. risk of, of 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 jacking it all in and yeah. getting a nine till five admin job so so, yeah, so when you were I, younger, I, I mean, obviously you were you were sort of, you know, you were having to do this performance stuff, but your eye was on a pen and paper to take minutes for a for Yeah, exactly. And... Just sort of, you know, um, spreadsheets, um, mm. Word document, a lot of like Microsoft um, programs, really, yeah, photocopying, yeah. of course, back in the day. But it's it's great that after that. You know, uh, and I, you know, I'm going to call it what it is. It's a, it's a tale of adversity. It's a tale of you mm. getting to a point in your life where you go, no more. You know, saying that on stage to to thousands of people, no more. And then, and then, you know, going backstage, opening your laptop, and and filling in a spreadsheet. Um, it's, that's right. Yeah, it's brave. It's very, it's very yeah. brave. Well, I knew it was brave, and that's why I live streamed it mm. when I did it. Um, because I thought this is brave, and people need to see me being brave. Yeah, I was like, I'm fed up with being constantly under people's eye and people watching me. I'm going to do admin for a living. I'll live stream it. I mean, by that point, you know, we were live streaming everything because if it wasn't being perceived externally, then it, it, you weren't feeling Did it. it. Even so happen? you knew it didn't even happen. Mm-hmm. So you needed people to know that you were brave in order for you to feel brave. Yeah, it's quite fascinating that you you continue to live stream all of your your admin stuff um yeah. in what i would call and this is just personal you know this my personal feelings and i don't mean to insult you what i would say was probably one of the most boring live streams well i mean let's look at what, what it how do you how do you continue when people are going log off turn this off turn the camera off this is stupid i don't want to i don't want to watch this someone when i was in my mid-30s someone in an interview asked me what the emotional backbone was that got me through my years of doing stand-up. And I would say about the admin, as I said about the stand-up, that if you really believe in what you're doing, then you are your own backbone. Mm. And I knew that what I was putting out was was good stuff. I mean, let's, let's like, describe what it was. Mm. You know, it was a camera side-on to me at a laptop with a keyboard, and you couldn't even see the screen. No. So you just saw me staring at my laptop doing Word documents and Excel sheets. And there was no what? ring light or anything. It wasn't well no, lit. Often, it, wasn't often well lit. it was just illuminated by yeah. the laptop. I made no screen. effort with my appearance, so there was nothing on that score. Um, it There's wasn't no a good – it was a Dell, a Dell laptop. <laughs> so it crashed regularly. Yeah. Um, a, lo- a, lo- a lot of it was you doing troubleshoot calls to Dell, trying to, <laughs> trying to revive it. But, you know, some people – 
some people just loved it, didn't they? <laughs> some people Did went they? wild for it. I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, obviously... There I were say, a few I, people who, who just couldn't get enough of it. I personally uh, detested it. Sure, I mean, unequivocally, you weren't but, alone. But... But, but a lot of people loved it so much that they would come and see you do these concerts where you would yeah. just do admin on stage yeah. and people would watch yeah. you silently and reverently. That's right, yeah. But I would, I was quite adamant there would be no like pomp and circumstance around it. Like mm. I'd be doing admin as they walked in. I would sit in that chair typing up notes for the entire three hours and I'd continue and then they'd be ushered out by the ushers and I would still be doing it. Then there would be nothing else and they would they would never hear my name spoken, no compare, nothing. Because that would ruin the purity of it. I, I must admit I was a fan of that. That's when I jumped on board. That's when I went, <laughs> all right, I'm listening. I'm interested. These things got audiences, These didn't they? These stupid ideas. <laughs> These stupid schemes. Um, it's such a fascinating journey. Um, but I want to move on to your sort of later years. Yeah. Um, you didn't hit the, the 100. You didn't get the letter from the Queen, unfortunately. You, no. you, you, just, you just missed it by 20 years. Yeah. That's, that stung, I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> oof. It must have stung. Yeah. It must have stung. Um, I, I'm interested to know how, because there's still a lot of mystery surrounding your your death, but I'm yeah. interested to know how does one die from a one-foot drop? Right. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends what you're dropping onto, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. Because, like, you know, if you're dropping one foot onto sand or sponge... Or most things, actually, mm. then you'll be fine. You're golden. But yeah, you're golden. But if if you're dropping one foot onto <laughs> a bed of nails, which you're doing for a stunt for mm. I'm a celebrity, then that's when it's going to do you damage. And it and it killed you instantly. And yes, yeah. why why did you go on I'm a celebrity at age eighty? Just the money. Just as much as pure money motivated. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just, just wanted to get money. to the. You just wanted to get through the next twenty years comfortably. Yeah, I mean, God, I really, yeah, I really thought I'd get to a hundred, but, um, yeah, just they they were offering oh, thousands, thousands mm. of pounds. Um, I heard it was upwards of five thousand pounds that they gave. I you. think it was. I think it might have been actually. Yeah, five thousand pounds. Um, so, you know, who doesn't leap at that opportunity and. Mm. Looking back, they made assurances that it wouldn't be that dangerous, that it wouldn't, you know, kill me. So I do feel like they broke some promises there. Yeah. And I regret it. I regret going on it. Of course. Of course, one would if they'd, if they'd died. But then, if, but then, actually, when you think about it, if I hadn't gone on that, would Joel Domit have had the, you know continuing success that that he's enjoyed because he's been so like routinely successful but then he had this sort of sudden boost i think we're about the same age mm. me and joel and when he came back for the reunion kind of thing you know uh uh when he was on the same series as me mm. he you know he just flourished so much our, our our uh relationship was so got so many views and everything that i feel like oh, if, if one good thing came out of it it's it's, it's joel's success how do you feel about him going on a grief tour where he would just sit on stage and, and talk about how sad he was that you'd died? 
Right, I didn't know about that actually, and I'm quite well, he moved did do by it. that. It was a beautiful thing, but it felt repetitive because he'd just go on stage and he'd just rock back and forth and sob and go Rachel, Rachel right. for an hour. And it's hard to like repeat those emotions night after night, isn't There's it? There's something cynical if you're channeling it, yeah, if you're crying at the same point every time, people yeah. start to go, okay, what is what is this? Um, did he wear one of the masks from The Masked Singer <laughs> when he did it? Or? He did, of your of your face, yeah. Right. No, that's weird, I think. I think it, is, it is weird now that, now that we've summarised it, yeah. Yeah. Um, where was your funeral? Where did your funeral take place? Right, you know Piccadilly Circus? Yeah. So, uh, so imagine, so you're coming down Regent Street, yeah? Yep, yep. And you've got, uh, Haymarket ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And you've got Leicester Square to your left. Yes. And you've got the Piccadilly Circus Fountain just in front of you. Oh, yeah, I love that, yeah. So there's there. And then just to your sort of left and then down a bit, there's an Angus Steakhouse. I know so it. at I that know Angus yeah, Steak yeah. at that Angus Steakhouse. Yeah. That Angus Steakhouse. Um yeah. they don't usually bury bodies at the Angus Steakhouse. How did you get Oh them no, to... sorry. I was I was I was cremated and that was all done privately, but we had the wake right. at the Angus Steakhouse. I see. I Angus see. Wakehouse. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, as they, they, they put that over the top, did they? They put that over the they sign. They did, and... yeah, at my insistence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's interesting that they didn't cremate you at the steakhouse, seeing as they have the facilities. Do you know what? That is a good point. I don't know why they <laughs> refused. feels like you could have saved I don't money. know why they refused. That seems quite petulant now <laughs> of them. Why did they say no? Well, I'll never know, but they, we'll never, they said we'll never no. Know. Well, no. I mean, Some I could sort of ask personal them, vendetta, like, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who knows what you know? People carry in their heads. Yeah. Um, so you, you you died aged eighty after a long career of um, a variety of of of, of things um, in the entertainment industry. What is your lasting legacy? How would you like people to remember you? I think for the sheer diversity of performing um i think that we live in an age where people want you to do one thing mm. you know at a time they want you to, and, and the more niche the better uh you know people will be known for like one particular ca character or voice or something or mm. a particular song on tiktok or something like that um and for me i think doing both comedy and music and administration was something that no one else had done. And I feel very proud of that. Even if it's something that people go, why did she do that? Why? I hope they do. I hope they do. It's nice to it's nice to leave some mystery behind, isn't it? Yeah. It's a massive yeah. question. I would I would I'd love that to be like my legacy is people going, Why did she do that? Why did she do any of that? Why did she do any of that? Why did she bother? Yeah. Rachel Paris, look at what you've done. Thank you. That was Rachel Paris. She'll be remembered for many things, but mostly her ability to turn silently doing tax returns into a smash hit on Broadway. 
Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to nose around a comedian's house, take their stuff and see how much money you can make by selling it? No, that's a pretty niche thing, to be honest. A bit creepy, really. But that's the premise of Dave's brand new comedy podcast, Hard Sell, with me, Josh Jones. And me, Darren Harrier. We're going to travel the country, visiting the homes of different comedians, chatting about their spending habits before grabbing one of their favourite possessions and giving ourselves one week to try and sell it for charity in a competition to see who can raise the most money. It's a right laugh, as we get to meet amazing funny people like Kima Bob, Joel Domit, Rhea Lena, Ivo Graham, Josh Pugh and lots more. But also sort of like an incredibly stressful cheese dream where we're trying to shift what are essentially stolen goods against the clock. <laughs> it's bonkers. Hard Sell with Josh Jones. And Darren Harrier. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.